A slip of the tongue may mean the difference between victory and defeat. With a quick mind and a ready smile. How to lose friends and infuriate people all in one easy lesson. Made possible only through years of research. If you are to impress them, you must interest them. Truth. Truth and Soul Incorporated, the New Zealand Advertising Podcast. You solemnly swear that the testimony you're about to give to be the truth. So, um, welcome, Ross. Uh, um, nice to be here. You haven't listened to any of the previous podcasts, which I won't, which I won't hold against you. But it's all it's 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 not terribly taxing. Yep. Just, just here to, to find out about your your view on the way that the yep. business is going. Yep. Uh, how, how you started out, and uh, maybe some, as I say, some tips for those who who yep. might want to think about buying or selling an agency. Yep. So you went to school in Fielding. Fielding, Fielding Agricultural High School. Where is Fielding? Where is Fielding? Yeah. Uh, it's kind of just off centre of the universe, really, but it's right a little bit out of Palmerston North. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, so it's South North Island. Yeah, to yeah. a town of about 12, 13, 15,000. Okay, so it not not normally what we'd um, think of as the the hotbed for no uh, advertising folks. So no. how did you end up in the business? I left school in my sixth form. I, I, I wanted to get out of fielding, and, I, and there was no kind of university. Uh, uh, nobody in our family went to university in yeah. those days. So, um, but I wanted to get out of fielding, yeah. and initially. I applied to go into the New Zealand Navy Officers Cadet School. Yeah, I thought I saw a future on the Navy, and um, so I went over to Palmerston North for the final series of medical exams. And at the end of the day, they said uh, you've passed. You'll be. We're going to let you in, and we'll write to your mother. And then I got the bus home to Fielding, which is about twenty minute ride. Yeah, and I got home. And she said, how did you get on? And I said, well, i got some good news and some bad news. What's the good news? Well, they've accepted me. What's the bad news? I don't want to go. Yeah. And that 20 minutes, I decided that that wasn't for me. And I switched to advertising. Now, I'm not never quite sure how I got from there to advertising. Yeah. But I did have a very, very um, inspirational art teacher at school. Really great, interesting guy. Great potter. Mm-hmm. And and uh, curious name, hmm? curious name, yeah, Greg Potter, yeah. yeah. And he was um, he was a very inspirational guy, and uh, it was no coincidence that my best results ever were always in art, yeah, art history and painting and all that kind of shit, yeah. So um, and we we're here. We're talking about nineteen. 70, I think it would have been. And I got on my bicycle and I rode down to the Fielding Post Office because I wanted to get the addresses of all the ad agencies in Wellington. So you can't you can't remember actually why you decided on advertising? Other than I'd been interested in creativity and... Yeah, other and than ideas. that you were good at art at school and very little work was required. Yeah, yeah. So they Exactly. Were, yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I've got you. So I cycled down, down, down to the... Post office asked for the yellow pages because in those days, I mean, there was only one copy in town, really. Yeah. And I got, I copied out 
every ad agency in Wellington and their address, wrote to them all. And then uh, they all wrote back and, and I, I asked for an interview basically and they all wrote back and said, yeah, come down. On, on what basis did, did you say, hey... Uh, I just thought, look, I'm fresh out of school. I'm interested, in, interested in, the, uh, in agencies and I'd like to work in an agency. Can you give me a job? And so I went down there for a couple of weeks and I went and saw all these people and after about the fourth one, they kept on offering me jobs. Literally. I mean, every time I went to one, they would say, look, well, there's a job here if you want it. Unlike today. Why, why do you think that was? Because, like, today you write to an agency and go, oh, I quite fancy work in advertising. The, you won't get a response. Yeah. yeah. I, I think it was just a sign of the times. It was, there were more jobs around. Um, they probably liked the fact that somebody was coming to see them and actually taking the time to... Yeah. I, I don't know. But, yeah. Or they, or they just liked me. I don't know. I, but I did. Anyway, I, I, after about four, I thought, well, I should take one of these. So I just happened to take the last one I was at. I thought, this is a pretty good idea. And the last one was at? Kenyon, a company called Kenyon Brand and Riggs, or KBR. Yeah. It's funny how every agency, every they were never a great agency. They could have been, but they weren't. Every agency in the world who survives has always got three names. Well, TBWA. Sorry, unfair, but... Well, but they are, TBW, they were three names. T and the B and the W. Weren't they? TBWA, four. Yeah. Oh, four, four, yeah. sorry. Yeah. Sorry, three or four. Oh, right, okay, yeah. yeah. It always takes more than one person. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so there was no, no one is no that arrogant apart from Mr. Gray. Exactly. Apparently, he's yeah. given up. But yeah. 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 Okay. So, so that's how I got in, and I got in literally at the junior level. Uh, it was a good little agency, and um, I got in as a kind of like a trainee suit, even though I didn't have a trainee program. I was basically, the first few months, I was probably just the runner. Mm. I ran everywhere around town, dropping stuff at typography places, dropping stuff at studios, picking stuff up, all that kind of stuff, and just learning. Yeah, I guess that's in London. The, the kind of the way in from nowhere was from the post room. I guess that was the yeah, it's so, exactly the same thing. Yeah, I was, it was the post room. Yeah, and I was pretty green coming from fielding. I sat in my, I was shared an office with my boss, who was I think the production manager, and I sat there for about three days. And I had a desk here, and he had a desk on the other side of, of the room. And there was a phone on the on the desk, and it never rang. And I kept on thinking, whose is that phone? Because I came out of, in fielding, we had a party line phone. Yeah. And this was, this had dials on it. So, it? so a, a party line was where, like, three or four houses shared it, was it? No, about five. Five yeah. houses? Yeah, yeah, shared the same line. Yeah. And you had a different ring, so you knew, you could tell by the ring who it was for. So was it, so the phone was in, each, each house had a phone. Yeah. But when it rang, it could they be. They all rang. They all rang, but if you had a long, short, long, say, yeah, ring, that was your ring, you knew that you would pick it up. Yeah. Sometimes neighbours picked them up anyway and listened on yeah. to, to each other's conversations. And we'd have a bit of fun as kids doing that. Yeah. But, I, you know, I came from that kind of environment. I'm sitting there for three days looking at this phone. And I finally said to this guy, name was Vic, Vic, who's, what's this phone for? He said, well, it's yours. <laughs> and I just I was staggered by the fact that I had my own phone. Mm. 
But this is, yeah, we're now talking without anyone to call. Without anybody to call, yeah. no. <laughs> so that was just a sign of the times. It was just the way the business was then. Yeah. And um, so I spent a couple of years there. Uh, and Wellington at that time was the, uh, the great where, place where most be. New Zealand advertising happened. Yeah. Yeah. All the head offices were all the agency head offices were in Wellington. Yeah. Largely. All the big corporates of head yeah. offices were down here. Yeah. Uh, down in Wellington. Yeah. And Auckland was all, all, even though it was, you know, four times the size, it was always viewed as a kind of separate lesser. A lesser yeah. place. Um Strange that. Okay, so you, you, you got on, presumably. You, you yeah, got, I was you there promoted. for a couple of years, and uh, I, I learned quite a few things. And then one day uh, I picked up the Dominion newspaper, and in those days the Dominion newspaper on the front page was all classified advertising, so mm-hmm. there were no um, no uh, display ads on there. Yeah. But there was this morning, there was, it was a quarter page in the bottom right-hand corner, it was from Ogilvy and Mather, and the headline read, read, nine brilliant ad men and women wanted. And I thought, shit, that sounds like me. Why not? A bit above my station, but I thought, so... So the the thought of, you know, that we kind of alluded to before, the thought of of agents actually hiring people off the street that just wanted in and went, oh, yeah, you'll do. Yeah. And the idea of an agency advertising to hire nine brilliant people today. Yeah. Yeah. It was was astounded by by the fact that it was... uh, it was a display ad on the front page of a paper that always had classified advertising. Mm. So they would have paid a premium for it. Or they'd have got it free because of that. Or, yeah, Mm. possibly. And the fact that the way they couched the thing, couched the message. Yeah. And I thought, shit, that's clever. So anyway, I applied and uh, I got the job and... um, it's all. It's also. Uh, there, it's it's a good way of Ogilvy and May the advertising for clients because you're yes. taking a big big yeah, yeah. spot in the front of That's paper. Right. That's right. You're going. We're growing. Yeah. Uh, pay attention. This is our name. We're That's important. Right. We go on the front of the paper, yeah. and we want brilliant people. Yeah. Yeah. And it was fantastic. And and the day I, wa- I walked in for the interview, again in those days. I know I keep on saying those days, but it, then this is about seventy three, seventy four. I think it was. Uh, they were on the top floor of uh, the World Trade Center building in Wellington because we had one too, but we had no planes coming yeah, to it, no, obviously. Yeah, no relation. Yeah. No relation. And the lift doors opened and there was shag pile carpet, this colour, this deep red colour, bright yeah. red colour. Yeah. And ogilvy red. Yeah. red. All the walls were white and all the furniture was black. And the carpet was that kind of like that deep. And uh, the, Ross is indicating one inch. Yeah, people. Yeah. And uh, and there were two uh, incredible looking women on the front desk. Yeah. And I thought I could live this. This yeah. is. Yeah. You know, it was the carpet that most attracted you. Well, to the carpet, that. definitely. Yeah. And we had. A, I was there for probably two or three years, and we had a fantastic time. And I learned a hell of a lot. I shared an office with Cullinane. Peter and I, and I can't remember the third guy. There were three of us in an office. Okay, so this is Peter Cullinane who went on to be a big part of uh, Saatchi and Saatchi Wellington. Globally. Uh, globally, yeah. and is uh, now, amongst other things... Um, Lewis Road. Lewis Road. Lewis Road Creamery. Yeah, we just sold it. Just sold? Yeah. Okay. Who Got to? It. 
the guy that owned half of it. I don't know, who, oh, a, okay. a big farming company in, yeah. in uh, South Island. Yeah. He did, I saw that in the paper about a month ago. Yeah. Um, so we had, uh, it was just an amazing agency to be in because uh, they were one of the early multinationals into Wellington. Uh, they were a serious competitor to Colenso at the time, uh, who were the most creative agency in town. Uh, and Colenso were based in Wellington? In Wellington, yeah. yeah, they, yeah. They, I think their head office was in Wellington, yeah. in Wall Street. And um, we had, a, we had, it was a fantastic two or three years. Because everybody always says to me that, oh, you should have been around advertising in the 80s, which I, which I wasn't, because yeah. I'm too young. But, yeah. but uh, how did the 70s differ to the 80s? It was well, there, there was there was a lot more attention given to training. Yeah. I, I, and I can only talk about my experience with Ogilvy as an example of that. But at Ogilvy, uh, we had a uh, one of the senior account directors was a guy called Don Ryder. And um, he trained people like Peter and myself. He trained all the young suits on how to write briefs and how to do a lot of stuff and how to think about strategy. And he was a very, very good suit. Mm. Um, uh, quite an old school suit, but a really, really inspiring guy. I think I'm right in saying that at the time, o- o- O&M were the... Um, I can't think of an equivalent now, um, but they were one of the leading multinationals. Absolutely. And they went out from the States because before then, before O&M came along, really multinationals didn't exist. No, the, the only one in town yeah. was McCann Erickson, really. Yeah, you, you'd have, you, just had, you just had local agencies. Big local agencies. Because I, I came across, uh, at some stage in my career, the Ogilvy and Mather book about how to run an agency. Yeah. Which you, you've probably yep. seen at some stage. Yeah. <laughs> it probably hasn't changed, but it, it's quite yeah. a useful yeah. um, every. Every, uh, it seemed like about every quarter, a parcel would arrive. It would go out to every office in the world mm. and it would be a magic lantern, which is like a 36 millimeter slide projector yeah. carousel. And it was a how-to uh, presentation, supposedly from David Ogilvy. I mean, mm. you know, who knows? But so the agency would gather in the in the boardroom, and then we'd we'd go through this presentation on how to write headlines, mm. how to create advertising that sells, how to do this, how to do that. And when you're in your twenties, early twenties, you kind of suck that stuff up. Yeah. Um, so there was a lot of that going on as well, a lot of training, and and we had. Uh, there was a guy, the CEO was a guy called Randy Cunnock who was sent out from London to open the office uh, with a guy called Mark, Mike Buckler. Mike was chairman and Rennie was CEO, I think. And Rennie was, Rennie was truly an inspirational hmm. uh, leader. And so people like Peter and I and a few others there, we had very good tutors on, on, the, on the ground teaching, basically. It, it sounds like because Ogre and Mather were the were the like the gold standard or the, the of of global uh, global multinational agencies. Others have come along since then and uh, been better, but the groundwork and the training yeah. and it seems like you really lucked out by we did. landing in that. We yeah. did. Yeah. So I spent 
I was there for two or three years, and then I went across to, I followed, I'm sure I followed my girlfriend or not at the time, but I got a job with, I, I transferred to Melbourne office for yeah. a year. How was that? Uh, that was, that was, it wasn't as exciting as being in Wellington. I think because it was bigger. Yeah, I, that Melbourne? Yeah. And Melbourne, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was very, Melbourne no, no, was I was very, shouting out to the Melbourneites. Who yeah. <laughs> Yeah. It was down St Kilda Road, and um, yeah. they had the same kind of office feel to it in terms of the red and the black and the yeah. white, uh, red, black and white, but it didn't have the same, wasn't the same level of fun and the same level of intensity as it was in Wellington. And by that stage, they'd opened an office in Auckland as well, and Auckland was going pretty well, and that mm. was a similar kind of operation to Wellington. But it was just a fabulous environment to be in, and, I, and you know, I, I, I was very lucky to be there, I yeah. thought. Um, but we were, and we worked bloody hard. Um, you know, I, I, I'd get there in the morning. Cullen had already been there. He was already in, in there a couple of hours earlier, probably. Uh, you worked hard, but you played hard as well. Mm. We, you know, not sure we lunched a lot, but we used to drink a lot mm. after work. You know, in terms of going out and having fun. I mean, yeah. Um, but we worked very, very hard. And it was a good, we had some great. I worked on, main client I worked on in those days at Ogilvy was um, Philips Colour Television. Yeah. K9. It was a launch of Colour TV in New Zealand. And, and the, the, the agency had decided to go and do some research, which I don't think too many people did in those days in New Zealand. No. To find out what people expected to see. Well, I think as most research is done by telephone and, and yeah. party lines, that was going to be. Yeah, so they, they hired uh, Halen Research, which was a leading research company in New Zealand at the time, and to understand what people wanted out of a colour TV set, even though people hadn't, hadn't seen colour TV yet. Yeah. But they knew it was coming. Surprisingly, they said colour. And so we went out on this line that uh, it's colour so natural it's almost like being there. Every other TV set, TV brand, colour TV brand, and there were a lot of them that mm. launched at the same time, they all went out on technology. And um, K9, uh, the, the Philips K9 swamped the market, cleaned up. Well, well Philips then and still do make, make pretty good... Yeah. Pretty good products, yeah. I, I, I can remember my, my father used to work in advertising, and yeah. he, um, you know, he announced we were getting a color TV, yeah. And uh, it's, I think he made more fuss about it than we did because yeah. as a kid, you're like, yeah, that'll be great, and then you get color TV, and yeah, you just, you just accept it, you just, yeah, that's right. Now, now we have color, and yeah. life goes on, but, but again, that you know, I, I, I'm young. I'm working with these people who, and I'd never heard of research before, never heard of market research before, and and um, they believed in what they were doing, and they sold it well, and they got the client on side, and you know, one of my jobs was to go around the country, uh, around all, making all these dealer presentations. I was just part of a team that were doing it; I wasn't doing it, but it was just a fa- fabulous learning experience, and. Um, it was just brilliant. So you uh, you spent a year in Melbourne. Yep. Uh, I, 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 and you you did Phillips back in New Zealand. Yep. 
So uh, what, at what stage, you know, you were working your way up the ladder, at what stage do you think, I know, I think I'll go and do this on my own? That hadn't, I'd always kind of thought about it, but it hadn't really kind of clicked in properly until I then came back from uh, Wellington. I came back from Melbourne to Wellington. Yeah. Because my girlfriend, who was soon to be my wife, decided that she wanted to be back in Wellington. And I'd got, I'd, uh, I'd had some issues around um, health. So uh, I came back and I joined uh, Ilot Advertising. You, does that name ring a bell? No, I don't yeah. know. Ilot at the time um, was the biggest agency in the country, privately owned. Mm. They actually funded George Patterson's into business in Australia in part. So Ilot's came before George Yep. George well, I, I, um, I don't know if George Patterson's were in Australia at the time or... But anyway, I, I know that ILOTS actually helped them get into business in Australia, George Patterson himself. Right, OK. I do, just a bit of background for listeners, because uh, George Patterson, anyone who's spent time in Australia, is a, is a big and famous yeah. na- name uh, of an agency. I don't... Uh, I worked there for a while because yeah. they became uh, well, George Patterson Y&R and... Do they still exist? No. 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 Yeah, I mean they were kind of like a, a, a Colenso. If you imagine in New, Ze- in New Zealand, Colenso not existing anymore. Yeah, that's right. George Pat's disappearing is a bit. That's right. A bit like well, that. in New Zealand, it was Ilots. Yeah, they've been around for a long time. They'd started in the forties, I think, thirties or forties. They even had a London office for a little while. Wow. Back this is back in probably the fifties. Yeah. Um, and they were a really big agency uh, in Auckland and Wellington and Christchurch and Dunedin. Hmm. Every place in the country. So I joined them, uh, and I was there, I was there twice over about eight or nine years, I think, from memory. And uh, I got uh, I got to account director level, and then I became a shareholder and a director of the company. And I was pretty young, but I was working very hard, hmm. very very hard, and I. Um, a client came in to see me one day, and I, I, I knew I wasn't well, but I couldn't figure it out. And a client came in to see me one one day, and uh, we had this meeting, and then he left, and then he phoned me up as soon as he got back to the office, and he said to me, Ross, are you okay? And I said, why do you ask? He said, you don't look very well. And I said, well, it's funny you say, I, I don't think I do mm. feel very well now that you think, now I think about it. So I went and saw my doctor, my GP, and I walked in and he said to me, hello, what, you know, how are you doing? And he was like, very happy chap. Mm. He said, what can I help you with? And I burst into tears. And he waited for me for about 15 minutes, he waited for me for to calm down. And what had happened was that ILOTS at the time, although it was very big and all my clients were, were doing very well, the agency was losing a lot of business. Mm. And I think I was taking that on. It, it lost in New Zealand, and then it lost Shell, and then it lost. It had all these huge brands. And you were a shareholder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A tiny wee shareholder. Mm. But I think I was taking that on board myself, and uh, so, and it got to me. And so you know what advertising is like, and it, it can put incredible pressure on you. I, I, absolutely, absolutely. Like like when I was saying that, I'm not now kind of uh, yeah. more or less retired yeah. and the release of pressure yeah. and 
and for for listeners who are still working in it, I think if if you if you can't handle the pressure, you're in the, the wrong business. Right. Yeah, but it is there. Oh, I had it every single day. Yeah, you, it was like you know what what <laughs> yeah what problems have I got? Um, I know. So I, so I'm dealing with this pressure, and anyway, this this doctor saw me, and I and I once I once once I stopped. You know the the tears. Yeah, he said to me. He looked at me. He said, "Ross." He said, "I'm seeing about one guy in your position a week, and and it's you know you 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 don't realize that you're heading for a fall, big fall, if you don't start making a few changes." Mm. And he said, "I think you first thing I, you should do is take a break, take an extended break." I said, "How long?" He said, "Well, well, as long as you possibly can." I said, "Well, I." I'll, you know, I'll take a holiday for a couple of weeks. I'm thinking longer than that, Ross. And he said, well, I can't. I'm, I'm too busy. I can't. I, mm. And he said, well, anyway, he, to cut a long story short, he made me go go from his surgery to home and not go to the office that day. And he mm. phoned my boss. He said, look, I'll phone them. I'll take care of them. Yeah. You just go home and I want you to take three months off. Mm. Literally, he mm. said. Otherwise, you're going to be in trouble. So um, he phoned the agency and uh, said to my boss, look, I'm not well and need some time off. And and they were very good about it. And so I sat at home and I I think our youngest child had just been born. Um, Yeah, he had because I spent most of my time walking the, the pram around the block trying to figure out what the hell I was going to do. And um, and then I began to realise all the pressures that I was taking on on board myself that weren't mine, I, but I was I was trying to take them on board because of the pressure that we live under in advertising. And I decided that um, first of all, I decided that I'd get out of advertising. I genuinely sat there for for a while thinking, now what else can I do? And I don't, I couldn't think of anything else that I wanted to do, and just fortuitously. A friend of mine, an English guy, phoned me one day and he was the treasurer at a bank. And he said, Ross, look, we're launching, I want to launch this new uh, product, a new investment product. And can you do it for me? And I said, but you've got an agency. Yeah. He said, they're no good. I, I want to get rid of them and I want you to do it. And I said, well, look, Andrew, you know I can't because... I'm taking some time off. It was about this is about six months after the event by the stage, I think, from memory. And so you were back at work. At no, 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 no. I was still at home. Yeah. I said I can't. And um, he said, "Well, I really want you to. Um, but I need someone I can trust." And I said, "But I haven't got any. I, I'm not an agency. I'm just by myself." Mm. And he said to me, "Well, Ross, that's your problem, but I need you to help me." And so I rang up. A couple of guys who I, I only vaguely knew, a, a writer, an art director. Sorry, one writer, writer who I'd worked with at um, Ogilvy, and we started an agency on the back of that client. And um, that's how I got to it was kind of by accident, but I knew yeah. I wanted to do it. Yeah. yeah. Well, I th- uh, thank you for sharing it. I think that's a, that's a really Im- important story. I think. Um, uh, issues with mental health in all industries yeah, absolutely. are going on, yeah. and and I think in in advertising, um, 
particularly. So yeah. you know, so to you know, again to folks out there, it's, this is this is not a new thing. No, yeah? no, perhaps to the best of us, and don't yeah. think you're on your own. Yeah, and I've had the same situation where I've seen people about to fall off the deep end, mm. and I was and I've said to them, listen, you, you need to get away from this for a while. Mm. We'll we'll help you get away from it. Uh, because it's a, you can't. If you, if you take on everything that you're, and you take on board everything that you're working in and around and whatever, uh, it's not you. It's not very good for your health. So, yeah. and I, you know, I, and I became a stronger person for doing that. So that's kind of how I got into. Yeah. So, so there were three of you. Yep. Uh, plus, um, you know, working in a, in a, in, in uh, Wellington. Yeah. And you. You built the agency up. Yep. And at, at what point did the Clemenger Group come knocking and go, or oh, maybe we could be a part of this? Funny things happen in our agencies, as you know, Paul. It's, it's a really interesting thing happened. And w- one day, this is just, this was in the share market crash, 87. Yep. And we got a call from Chase Corporation, and they wanted to, they wanted an agency to launch a huge new property development down in Courtney Place. And we got the business. And as you want to do, um, and I, I learned a lesson here, uh, I sent out a press release to the media saying that we'd just been appointed by Chase Corporation yeah. to handle this big thing. And then uh, it, got, it got into NBR or Ed Media or somewhere, I can't remember where, and... A client told me, oh, no, we're still using HKM in Auckland. Because I thought that that it was just us. Uh, oh, right, right. You, so you went to press and said, right, we've got this, this business. Yeah. And the client goes, well, hang on, you've got some of it. You've got, you've got, you've got it in Wellington, but in Auckland <clears throat> we're still using HKM. <clears throat> so I got on the phone straight away and I thought, sure, I've caused a bit of a problem here. And I rang, uh, I got hold of Mike Hutchison. And he said he thought it was a great joke. He said, "Look, don't worry about it." And um, Mike, Mike was was running HKM. HKM. He was yeah. the, he was the <coughs> H. Yeah. Hutchison Knowles and Marinka, yeah. He was the H. And Hutch said to me, "Throwaway line." And we, we're often in Wellington because we, they had the Honda business. He said, "Next time we're in Wellington, well, I'll give you a call and we'll have a chat." Hmm. Never thought, gave it another thought until there was a knock on the door. Literally a knock on the door one day. We had a, we had a. We were renting a big house in Thornton. That was our agency. And it was Hutch and Mike Knowles and Marco Marinkovic on the front door. Mm. And they said, look, we're in town and we've, we've finished a meeting early. We thought we'd come and see you. And they spent the afternoon with us and we got on like a house on fire, particularly Hutch and I. And um, one thing led to another and they ended up buying us. Mm. Uh, well, you ended up buying us. Because they own most of HKM, right? So we became a we became HKM in Wellington, and, uh, and that was that was a lot of fun with Hutch. Um, then I got a call, and then I was I was on the board of um, and that that worked out well financially, presumably. Yeah, uh, it was it, it wasn't a great coup mm. because we we had we'd only been going about eighteen months, so we didn't have a lot to sell. Yeah, good for them. Yeah. But this is where a little bit of naivety was kicking in, obviously. Yeah. But we sold and um, we became part of a bigger agency and then part of the Clemenger Group and I was briefly on the board of uh, Clemenger. Um, 
and hated it. Uh, thought hated being in the same room, room as Hilton Mackley. Then one Sunday, uh, one Sunday morning, Hutch phoned me and said, "Look, can you get on a plane and come to Auckland tonight? Because we're having a meeting with the we're having dinner with the Rialto guys." Are those cinema guys? No, Rialto uh, Advertising. Oh, I didn't. Who were also a Clemenger agency. Right. And they were, up until that point, or shortly before, they were a very hot agency in Auckland only. But they were floundering. And um, Hilton decided that he had put HKM and, and um, Rialto together. Yeah. And it was just a terrible... We went to this lunch, uh, dinner uh, where Marco pissed on everybody else at Rialto because he thought they were a bunch of crackpots and didn't mm. respect them and it was just terrible. And then we got told off by Hilton the next day for treating family members like the enemy. And mm. Anyway, they forced us into this merger, which none of us wanted to do. But we, by that stage, they owned the business, so we had to do it. And we became HKM Rialto for a while. So I ran HKM Rialto in Wellington along with Kim Wickstead. So we had two MDs, two crowd directors, two media directors. It was just a shambles. Yeah. And um, I decided that I liked, I preferred it being in charge of my own destiny. And we were pitching... Uh, because, because you were owned by someone else or because uh, there were two of you in... No, no, because we were owned by somebody else. Yeah. I, you know, in selling, <clears throat> we lost control over what we were doing. And... Um, so, you know, after about nine months, um, HKM and Wellington were pitching for the Postbank business, or ANZ, who owned Postbank. And I was asked to help them on the pitch, and we had Rural Bank as a client in Wellington. And I knew that if we won the business, they would have to let go Rural Bank as a client. So as soon as HKM won the, the, the other bank, I then went to the Rural Bank CEO and said, look, this is happening and I'm not happy and I want to uh, carry on with you as a, cli- as a client, but I want to start again. Yeah. And they said, go for it. So I did. And that's, that's how we... And that was okay contractually with the... Yep. Yeah. Yep, because um, they had to let go the rural bank anyway. Yeah. Because that because No, I went about your restraint of trade if you but but, well they probably had two CEOs they were probably glad to get rid of one. There were, there were, well Kim by that stage he'd gone too because he was fed up. Yeah. Uh I think in those days I don't think there were restraints of trade. Yeah. Okay. I'm sure there weren't actually. Anyway, so I started again and um with a couple of other people and that's how we started Golf like Harris Thompson. And, um and then uh, we started with the Royal Bank, and then we and and that we grew that very quickly over about seven or eight years, and we did very well out of it. And um, I had a, had a, again had a lot of fun and good times. We only had one bad year, and even then we made money. Mm. But we only had one really, you know, borderline year, but we, we it was a great time. And as we got became more successful, uh, agencies. Uh, multinationals kept on knocking on the door because at at the at, at the time, uh, if I'm right, so the multinationals, generally all based in the US, wanted to 
serve US companies all over yeah. the globe. And hey, that includes New Zealand. Yeah. And so the the bigger companies will, will go, shit, we haven't got an office in New Zealand. Yeah. It's about time we got one. Yeah. Let's have a look about. Yep. So, uh, and we kept on saying to him, we're not interested. Thank you, but we're not interested. Hmm. Uh, we got as far as doing, doing due diligence on buying Ogilvy in Wellington, ironically. You were going to do reverse takeover? Yeah. yeah. The, the, uh, they approached us. The CEO approached us. It was mad. I mean, he was in the process of going to Clemenger's. In, in, um, but he said, look, you know, we, we want to do something with you. Uh, and, and or you may want to you may want to buy the office the mm. operation of Wellington. So we we did we did due diligence on them, but we did we it was just a mess. So we mm. we stayed away from it. And then YNR came along, and they said to we said look we're only interested in talking with you. Uh, we we're not we don't want to give up control. So we want exi- at least fifty percent of the action. And they said we're happy with that. And so uh, we ended up putting operation together with theirs through a through a quite a complicated relationship. But we became one company on the face of it, and we ended up with a couple of guys in all, at one in Auckland. We ended up owning sixty percent of it. So who uh, who who contacted you? Was it uh, in Australia or in New York? And I was here, and and uh, oh, why not in New Zealand? Yeah, yeah it was yeah. the chairman. It was the independent chairman of the agency, right? Who initially contacted me, and then he came down with the CEO, and so we had a meeting. And by this stage, uh, I was I'd kept on saying to our, uh, my partners that at some stage, you guys, we're going to have to say yes to one of these people, because we're heavily dependent on one client. And as fast as we grow other clients, this client is growing faster than they are. Mm. And, you know, clients change, as we know. Uh, We'd had this client for a a good number of years, or the bank. And um, one day there'll be a change. And I I, I don't want to be on my own when there's a change. Yeah. So I, I think we should say to one, in the next year or so, we should say to Yes, to one of these people. As a security blanket. Security blanket. Yeah. And um, and one of the partners wanted to get out as well. So YNA came along and they said, look, we, we'll, we're interested, we want to do something with you, and we're quite happy to leave control in New Zealand. So we ended up owning 60%, and I was, I owned 30% of it on my, in my own right. So, and because of the way we, I had a very good lawyer, the way we worded the sale and purchase agreement and the contracts uh, were that uh, even at 30%, I could, they had to come to me before, before they wanted to do anything. Right. And so we had a degree of control um, that, that's beyond what you'd normally get in that situation. Um, so I listened to that, people who are thinking, uh, maybe thinking about um, selling an agency that, that uh, lawyers are expensive but useful. At the time, uh, the, law, the bill from the lawyer and the accountant over a year, because it took a year to negotiate, because we were dealing with Auckland, Sydney, and New York, mm. and there are lawyers in every city. So it cost us $100,000 to do the deal. This is in 1980, 
and I wanted. We'd, we'd at the same time we'd 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 joined or we'd got a generator in, and I wanted Tony to be CD. God knew that I just kind of got to have a thing as a very clever guy. And in the end, I'd already said to John, look, you, from now you make the decisions, because I, I want you to start running this as if you're on your own now. And he decided an alternative option. As it turns out, we would have been better to have hired Tony. Hmm. Whether he would have stayed with us, I don't know, but he was a talent, a rare talent, and a really good guy. And uh, you know, look, look what he's got on to do. Incredible. Yeah. That, that, that special now, very yeah. successful, just opened an American office, yeah. I believe. Yeah, and and successfully going in Sydney. A couple of things that, you know, in, 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 in your business career, and I've, this happened to me a couple of times, that was one of them. Another time, this is beyond advertising, when I was out, in a, when I owned another business, when I knew intuitively that hiring a guy was the, putting a guy in place to run the business was the wrong thing to do, but I let myself be talked into it. And it rebounded on me badly. And uh, so going with your gut feel on some people is a good thing to do. Follow your, what your gut is telling you about when, you, when you're hiring people. Not all the time, but... Yeah, well, that's, that's the thing. Go with your gut instinct, but not all the time. Yeah. <laughs> but, the, but the, well, your gut instinct, I mean, you have to rely on a lot of factual information, obviously, but mm. when push comes to shove, uh, what can turn it uh, is, is your gut instinct about a person, in my experience. And when I haven't, when I've gone against my gut instinct, I've been wrong. But those, these are things you learn, obviously. So you, uh, and, and you oversaw, you were kind of like the in, in the background figure yeah. of Y&R as it, as it went through a bit of um, turmoil. No, 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 no. But, uh, I was in the background, but that's like we were growing really well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we we we'd won a lot of business with this is with John there. Yeah, uh, we'd won a lot of business, including the Bank of New Zealand and uh, Burger King. Yeah, so we were doing really well, and so um, and then I left. Then I retired, basically. Yeah. We well, didn't retire. But then I, stopped. I I think I went to your retirement party. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and so um, first one, yeah. and then and I and I was, then I went over to Lon- uh, went over to England to live for a couple of years. Cardiff, when you in Cardiff. Oh, just north of Cardiff. Yeah. Sorry, on the other side of Cardiff. Yeah. I, I'd, about a year before I... Well, part of this plan of getting out of advertising, well, I, I, I got into another business, mm. and completely unrelated to advertising. It was a, a company uh, supplying medical kits to super yachts yeah. here in Auckland. And about a year before I left Y&R, sort of sold out completely, I, I'd put some money into this business. And um, so I, be, I became the biggest shareholder. And when I finally came to leave YNF, finally, uh, I'd already made up my mind to go to England to to rescue this business because we were we'd shifted a couple of people to Mallorca, and we'd started a business in in uh, Wales to service the European market for superyachts. Mm. And um, I decided to that I, I need to be there to fix it because uh, there was a lot of my money in there. It was actually going out the back door. Mm. And I couldn't afford to lose this kind of money, so I got on. And I was, I was single, uh, and I got on my um, on my on the plane, and away I went. Yeah. And uh, there are a lot of things you learn in advertising that you can apply to other businesses. I found as well. Because I remember I arrived in Wales in November, 
2008 or nine. It was the year of the share market crash. Year of the... Um, GFC. GFC. So, yeah, 2000, so November 2008. Yeah. Cardiff, November 2008. Not, not, not the best place to be, I imagine. Dark. Yeah. Fuck. Dark. And, mm. and uh, uh, the business couldn't even afford to, me to be there. Mm. So I, had, I wasn't earning a salary for a while. I had to pay my own way to get there um, because I was so worried about the cash flow. And I, was, I remember, you know, I was living in this, I, had, I rented an apartment somewhere in Cardiff, I don't know where it was, Dark as hell, mm. and uh, not what I was used to. Trying to work out what the hell I was going to do with this business, I phoned the, uh, our sales manager in uh, Mallorca. He was one of the two founders of the business, and he was an ex uh, SAS medic. He and his business partner—they were both medics in the SAS, New Zealand SAS. Mm. So they knew everything about medicine in remote places and medicine on a boat, on a super yacht, because they're yeah. always in remote places. Yeah. Things happen. So they designed these really great products, really great uh, approach to the business, which is what hooked me into it, was the product. It was so good. And I, I didn't, but I got there and I was faced with all this money running out of the business and sales being about a third of what they should have been, to even to break even. And having to report another monthly loss to my other shareholders in Australia. So one day I got a, I got the guy from New York, the sales guy, to come over to Heathrow Airport, and I got one of the guys to come over from Cardiff. And I hired a room for the day, and we met for a day. And I said, "Look, I, I want to know how this business works. I want to know how the some where does the process start when somebody decides they want to buy spend five thousand pounds on a, a euros on a medical kit for the super yacht." Or five of them. Yeah. You know, how does it start? It took me about two hours to get them to actually start answering the question, where does the process start? Because one of the things you learn in advertising is that you need to understand where the customer journey is. Yeah, yeah. And where the communication inputs are and all that kind of stuff. And finally they clicked. And, and so we did. We mapped the process to, I, I, to help me understand how the whole thing worked. I didn't, I was green as hell. Didn't know anything, really. So, anyway, through the, through the, that day, it taught us, we suddenly realised that we were adopting the wrong sales strategy. We had this guy, we based him in Mallorca so that he could go and knock on the hulls of super yachts, get himself, took himself on board the boat with a fancy kit and try and make a conquest sale. And we worked out that the best thing we could do was actually talk to where the ships are being built while they're being built right. because they always, it takes about two years to build a ship. Yeah. And after they've designed it, the first thing they do, the first person they employ is a skipper, even yeah. though the boat's two or three years out of the water, to oversee the build yeah. and to oversee the fit out. That's the time that you talk to these guys. And had, not, had, I, had I not used that kind of thing that we always did in advertising to understand the journey... Had I not done that, I don't think we would have changed the strategy, and I don't think we would have survived. Yeah, I, I, I personally think that the, the 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 business lessons that that you learn in advertising, yeah, because you're in and out of so many yeah di different companies, that's right, and, and you you almost um, your muscle memory yeah it, it, it is like you know what, what are you trying to do? How are you trying yeah. to achieve it? And and 
often, particularly with small um, small businesses, the, whoever's running. Oh. I I thought I heard something. Oh man, get that way in the mountains. Here, a lot of things ain't really there. No, no. It sounded like horses. Whoever's running doesn't. Yeah. They just don't think that way. That's they right. think I've got a great product. Uh, make it. I've, there yeah. it is. Everyone buy it. Yeah. And, um, Why aren't they buying it? Yeah. And so, so, so we did that. And we, we changed the strategy completely, the sales strategy. And we said, we said to uh, the sales guy, "You need to go and find out where the you know where the shipyards are." He said, "Yeah, they're all in places like Romania and Germany and and um, Yugoslavia and all over the Italy." So we'll go and see them. And over the next two years, we grew the revenue line by sevenfold, just by because we had such a great product, and I knew it was a good product, and we applied the right kind of principles to get to the right answer. And that's what that's why advertising is such a great business to be in. Yes, because as you say, you you know, one hour you're working on a bank, and then you're working on a burger, and then you're working on a farming operation, and then you're doing toothpaste, and and yet that's you you know you learn some. I once went to work in New York. Well, I thought I was going to work in New York. I didn't do it. I got there and I hated it so much. I came home, but I was going to be an account manager on one type of toothpaste for one Colgate brand, and that was going to be my life. And I'm thinking, do I want to do this? How long were you in New York before you decided that? Five days. Five days. Yeah. Literally. And and, and you went. Yeah. And I and I, I you know a mate of mine uh, they said to me. I said to my boss in New Zealand, can you get me to London? So he tried. He said, there are no jobs, but there's an opening in New York. Do you want that? I said, yes. He said, you have to get over to Sydney this week to meet the account director who happens to be in Sydney on the Colgate thing. And uh, so I get across to Sydney, and I met this guy, and he said, yep. I came home and only then told my wife. Mm. She said, look, I don't want to fucking go to New York. And I said, look, I'll go. I'll go ahead and then... I'll, I'll find a place to live and I'll get settled and then you, you and George, our only child at that point, can come across. Yeah. And I'm stuck in this hotel room in Times Square, just off Times Square, wondering what the fuck I've done. Uh, uh, that, that, that's quite like a navy, isn't it? You're just... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah but no. Now, um, I've got some questions for you. What most important piece of advice could, could you give to young people who want to get into the business now? I think, you know, if, if, you, can get in, if you can get into an interview situation, I think you've got to be, you've got to be, you've got to be able to take no for an answer and you've got to keep on going until, until somebody says yes, uh, because it is a wonderful business to be in. I think you got to, I think today, Going what I've gone through now, to what's happening today, I'd be looking for a different type of business to be in, in the agency world. You know, heavily, heavily uh, uh, digitally focused and mm. big into technology and data and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I think you've got to you've got to back yourself. Um, you've got to talk to as many people as you can, and when one door closes, you've got to be there'll be another door opening somewhere, and you've got to. Keep on going until you get what you want. You know. Uh, uh, persistent. How do you how do you think? Wait, what is, what is the the biggest change that that you've seen um, over your years in the industry? Now, obviously, digital. But I don't know if if I, I, well, I think go I, beyond that. 
I think, I think well, I mean, a lot, there's a lot of those things that change, obviously, that, that technology has brought on us, but the fundamentals don't change. Yes. The way you deliver messages and the way, you know, you approach some things change, but fundamentally everything is just the same, I think. Um, but I don't, think, I don't think people are trained as much as they used to be. Yeah, that's right. I think, I think people get trained at university in it, yeah. learning stuff. Yeah. But when they come into the agency, it's kind of like they're left there to get on with the job. Yes. And you can't do that. I mean, it's, it's on-the-job training. On-the-job training is critical. Yeah, I, I remember where, um, yeah, working at, at Y&R in uh, 1990. It was in uh, London. In London, yeah, when I started. The, the, the suits would come in and they would work. They would work. Um, you know, you'd take, I don't know, three, five suits every year. Yeah. And, they, and they'd, they'd spend some time in production. They'd spend some yeah. time in creative. That's right. And they'd, and they'd go on. Yeah. And there was a... Although it, in London, nobody, nobody joined an agency having done tertiary education in advertising. No, they didn't. They, they, they'd done geology or yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. art history yeah. or something. There was no... Yeah. That, yeah. Yeah, that, that didn't exist. Yeah. The, 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 the wonderful thing about an advertising, I think, and it's still the case, you generally get a lot, you get people who are very uh, inquisitive. They've got yeah. inquiring minds and they want to know things. They want to know why. And when you, conversely, when you're hiring people, in advertising, I always found that often I'd say, "Look, I've, I've got your CV. It look, it look, I mean, I know you can do the job, but then I'd say things like, you know, what are you reading right now?' Mm. To try and get an understanding of what their minds are like and how and what they were thinking about, and and how they were approaching things and how how inquisitive they are. Cause well, you, well, people, people, um, they learn how to write CVs, and they they yeah. learn, you know. By rote and uh, yeah. and um, things that they think their employers want to hear, yeah. and, and anybody or most people can sit in an interview for half an hour yeah. and uh, put across a t- uh, what they think the employee yeah. employer wants. But it's f- what you want to find out as a, as the interviewer interviewer is what are they really like when you yeah. when you take that to one side, and that that's, uh, that I think is always it's always a tricky. Th- thing to do yeah so it's like saying to somebody when you're going into a young person when you're going into an interview by all means tell them about uh you know what you've learned and what courses you've done and what degrees you've got and whatever but you know get get that stuff out of the way pretty quickly and then tell them about you tell them about if if what there is about you is <laughs> worth sharing, well, well, but but uh, well, if it's not, then the interview is going to be very short, <laughs> which is which can be a blessing. Yeah, but it, it, but if they really want to to if they want to get in the front door, then talk about yourself, not in terms of you know, but in terms of how you think and what you're interested in, hmm. and what books have you read, what films had made you really energized or. Who do you really admire politically? You know, who do you admire as a writer? Find out those things. Talk about those things that, you know, mm. and and um, then you're sharing something about you. It's not just what's on a bit of paper and what it says on a on a on a degree. Um, because people, the people who are hiring you in advertising, they are g- generally looking for people who have got inquiring minds. They've got to be able to do the job, and they've got to be able to do the job when it's needed. And meet deadlines, but most of all, they want people who can think, mm-hmm. who can say, 
why is that happening? Uh, so we we talked a, a, lot, a lot about the, the business and, and the account management side of advertising. Yeah. If I could turn what, just to the creative for a bit, what's yeah. the, what's the work that uh, over your uh, career that that you've been involved in that that you've most been proud of? I think the, work. the stuff that we did, uh, the stuff that I I, I thought. The best I've been involved with is probably uh, a lot of the early Tui work, Tui Bear work, yeah, um, uh, which came out of Wellington. This is before uh, before we were Y and R days. Yeah, uh, that's some of the stuff that I was most proud. And but and this was another lesson to me too. At the time, we were working with a very very good client, a client who pushed us, really really pushed us. No, not 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 in a threatening way, but pushed us to do great better. work, yeah. to do better work. And uh, she was the she was the uh, marketing director, and she had a lot of the DB brands under her control. And and she'd given us the the Tui, uh, we'd won the Tui pitch, but she really pushed us and uh, nurtured us to do. And those clients are really, you know, they're pretty hard to find. Yes, in yeah. my experience. Yeah, I've I've come across a, f- a few in my career, and and when they go, when you present work, and they go, yeah, yeah, that's often they they like kind of pull you aside afterwards, go, yeah, it's, it's, we kind of like what we saw, but yeah, I think there could be something further. And on on occasion, what they actually mean is, you know, go backwards. Don't yeah, be so creative, right. which is oh. a bit sad. Yeah. But sometimes they, they you know, they actually mean, no, you, we really want to yeah. take it. And you go, ah, yeah. okay, fine, let's do that. Josh got that, you know, when I was working with him at Y&R in, in a chair role. Uh, I mean, those guys were doing it, but he got that with uh, this guy, Fernando, who was part of... Oh, yeah, the uh, Burger King... Yeah, he he was the guy Global from the private marketing equity director of Burger King. Well, he was he was he was the guy that the private equity firm in Brazil they put him into because they owned they say they owned Burger King, they put him in to fix it. Right, and he happened to be one of the most awarded marketing guys in the world. Yeah, and they didn't know this until uh, I mean Josh has probably told you the story about how the whole yeah thing happened. Yeah, this is the uh, McWhopper yeah. campaign. Yeah. yeah, but had they, you know, they, they they made a video of the idea. But this after it was rejected by the local yeah. BK. They sent it. They tracked down this guy in New York and sent it to him. He took they probably emailed it to him. I guess he took one look at the video and said something like, "Get on the next plane. Yeah. I want to hear about this." Yeah, but had they not got a guy who was a very uh, a very creative, very strong marketing guy who understood the power of brands and marketing and ideas. It would never have happened. Yeah, like it never happened. For and, and it was the the persistence that um, uh, that Josh and the guys had absolutely to to push it through. Yeah, I'm not, I don't think I've ever worked with someone as persistent as Josh. Yeah, uh, he's a very very clever guy, and. Um, uh, you know, he, he, he this is would, Josh Moore, people. Josh Moore, yeah. yeah. He would knock down doors, uh, and he would just persist and persist until he could knock them down. Mm. And uh, I mean, you know, you put you, you get offside with some people on doing that, but yeah. but then you get the really good work through, like uh, McWhopper. And it was stunning work. Mm. It was just and and the stuff they did for Jaguar, 
which I thought was even better than McWiper, but it was a smaller thing. Mm. With James McKee, who's a client, yeah. uh, ex, ex-client. That's right. Well. Yeah. Yep. Another, fishing no, with him. Hi, James. Yeah. Another great client. Yeah. And those people, are uh, there's not many of them around, unfortunately. And so a lot of the work you end up doing uh, can be pretty humdrum because clients, they bring it back and they bring it back and they bring it back and then the idea disappears. Uh, I remember going to see uh, a, a great crowd guy in Saatchi's in Wellington years ago to ask him some advice on who I should hire as a CD. And he was talking about the fact that although on the outside it looked like they were doing, they were doing fabulous work, which they were, but he said, you know, he said we we would work on the principle of of if we can get one brief to work out a ten, we'll be happy. We'll be happy that the other nine will be average. They won't mm. be great, but and they won't be bad, but they'll be average. But if we get one out out of ten, then we're doing pretty well. Mm. And I think that that holds true now. Yeah, not not not, not a particularly high um, um, success rate, but that. that that's the business. That's that's the nature of the business. Yeah. Now, um, so what? This is the the segment I I really like, which isn't really a segment, but a question. What what's the what's the what do you think is the biggest mistake that you've made in your career? The things that you'd look back and you go. Bigger, okay. uh, biggest mistake, uh, I would say. Um, Other not, than hiring John Ramage. Yeah, no, no. We we had a good time with John. Yeah. Uh, the biggest, um, and we're still talking. Yeah, we still we still get together for a drink. Yeah, so he's a good guy. Um, the biggest mistake I think I ever made, I did, I never really uh, two mistakes, if I be brutally honest. One, John told me to ask this question. By yeah, the way. one was that I didn't school myself up in some business stuff like governance. I didn't understand contracts well enough when I was signing them. You know how somebody puts a bit of paper in front of you and. Sign this. It's all right. Don't worry about it. Just Don't sign. worry about it. Yeah. yeah. And uh, it took me. It took me. You know, several contracts to understand that I need to understand these better. I need to take the time to actually work out what these are actually saying, and understand why lawyers are recommending certain things to me. And um, I was a bit late in coming to that. So we sold out a couple of times too early uh, and it wasn't until we did the deal with Y&R that a lawyer sat me down one day and said look this thing here I'll put this into the contract it may not ever happen but if it does happen this will pr- provide protection for you sure enough it happened that way this one thing that he put mm. in the contract that he didn't think would ever come about but he said it may happen and it did come about and we did get the protection we needed so I didn't put enough attention into that. I have subsequently. I've had to do that subsequently. Yeah, I, th- I think it's important to remember that that, that contracts are normally um, in the in the two parties. In the case of buying and selling agencies, they're they're put together and everyone's uh, happy and chummy yeah. and and it's all good and we're all mates. And then yeah. that you know the issue can be that. Three four years down the track, yeah. that the the, the 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 people on the other side who signed it are not necessarily there, yeah. and the the people who who are there don't view things in right. quite such a nice way. Yeah. So you got to, you got to take the time to to understand these things, and the sooner you start and come to grips with those things, the more attention you pay to that kind of stuff, the better it is for you later on. 
And then when I got the reverse situation of that happening that was in my favour, it was in, I think it was the last year at Y&R, uh, and Noel Lehman was our biggest client. Yeah. They were spending like $20 million a year with us. And we were getting a retainer of $200,000 a month, maybe two hundred and twenty-five. You're allowed to say that? This is like this is twelve years ago. Okay. Yeah. Um, and uh, they decided, and they they'd been bought by a private equity firm in Australia, and they put on new people, a new board, and a new chair. I won't name this chair, but he's he's a guy that I have no respect for whatsoever. He, and he, this is a guy who's written a book on business. He's got a weekly column in the Herald. Every time I look, look at that column, I think how bad this guy is, and yet he's mm. deemed to be a very good, you know, chairman. He came to me one day and said, look, we're putting the business up for pitch. I said, well, look, we're not going to participate because you've already told us you want to cut our fee by a third. And I asked your CEO the question, if you want to cut our fee by a third, which third of our services do you no longer want? Mm. And he said, no, we don't want, we want all of them, but we just want them for less. And I said, look, no, I'm mm-hmm. not going to do that. So we'll, we'll, we're not going to participate in the pitch and we'll resign the business. And uh, so we did that and, and uh, Hamish in Australia went apeshit at me and I said, look, I don't care. I, I've worked for four or five years to get this business back into profitability and it's going really well and I'm fucked if I'm going to give away that kind of money and drop my trousers that much and go backwards. So part of this is my money and I'm not doing it. So anyway, uh, the chairman then comes to see me one day after they decided on whoever they went with. Might have been FCB, I think. He said to me, uh, he rang me and said, I've got to come and see you. And I said, yep. He said, I want to talk to you about the contract that you have because we had an exit clause that said they had to pay us for six months to you know ease out a contract yeah the same figure every month and so um so i before he came i reread the contract just to make sure i understood i couldn't quite work out where he was coming from Mm. and what i didn't expect him to say was that ross we want to renegotiate the contract and uh, john was in the room john will tell you what happened So this guy sitting there, he's a big chief around town, and uh, he said, yeah, no, I, I said, what do you mean you want to renegotiate the contract? You've already, we've terminated the mm. contract. It's coming to an end, and there's an exit clause. He said, yeah, that's the part I don't like. So I said, you want me to agree to charge you a lower fee while we're still working for you, uh, and it's an earnout over a, a, an exit yeah. clause? He said, Yes. But I said, I signed that contract with your company and your company signed it with my company in good faith. And it's in writing. I've checked. Here it is. He said, oh, yeah, both said it's too much. So this guy kept on saying, and I'm, and I'm sitting here thinking, well, what is happening here? And John was kind of wondering what the hell is happening. And I'm thinking, am I missing something here? And I said, look, uh, Bruce, don't you understand that I'm a man of my word? And had we not had this in writing and it was a handshake agreement, I would honour my side of the agreement. And we have something in writing here, it's in contract, and I expect you to honour your side of the commitment. So the answer is no. 
and he got up and he and he threw his stuff on the on the bag on this desk and got up and left the room. So he rings me a couple of days later. Can I come back and see you again? Calm down. And he came. Same thing. Four times. And it got to the stage where I rang a couple of uh, CEOs of, of uh, big companies that I knew. I said, look, there's something, I, I, I might be missing something and mm. because it, it doesn't make sense to me. And uh, so, and, and I told them what had gone on and what the contract said. And they said, no, no, absolutely. You're entitled to get six months of revenue mm. from this client. They've chosen to exit the contract. They know that they, they would have known that before they terminate or before you agree to exit so no so just kept on saying no and I did in the end they had, they had to pay but had I it w- would have been had I not kind of had the learned about contracts and how these things work the hard way it would have been quite easy for me to say look I, okay well cut it in half or you know or, or, or I would have been bullied into it yeah but I refuse to be bullied hello who's there I don't know it, that, that's a strange, yeah. To me, it, it, it's I, you know, I don't know why he came back four times. I can only presume that he promised. Maybe the pressure on him, and he promised to someone up the line. Oh yeah, don't worry, I'll sort this we out. We figured that out. He he yeah. would have gone. We figured it out after about the second meeting that he's gone back to the private equity guys in Australia, and he said, "Look, I know this guy because he did know me, hmm. and I can talk him around to it." And and the, on the final time, he said to me. When I finally said no, he said, Ross, I just want you to understand that my private equity guys in Australia, the owners, have asked me to relay to you that this is a small town. And I said to him, is that a threat? He said, no, 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 no. I said, well, it sounds like a threat to me and I don't care, it still doesn't change my opinion. Mm. And so anyway, the the lesson I learned there was that the, the effort that I put into understanding how these things work Put me in a in a better position when there's, when you're faced with those kind of things in business, because those sort of things happen in business a lot. Particularly when you you own it when you own a business, these things happen a lot more than you'd expect, and you got to be able to deal with them. And uh, so, yeah, I'm rambling on a bit here. So, well, um, I, I, I certainly found that. That, um, that story uh, uh, very interesting. I love I love hearing about the, yeah. the the background to deals. So um, Ross, thank you very much for for, for coming in and yeah. talking to us and and sharing some some tales from the past. That's good. It's a great industry, and, and yeah. you know, and good good luck with all your ventures uh, in the future. Yep, thank you. You're listening to Truth and Soul, the New Zealand Advertising Podcast. Okay, so thank you very much to the usual suspects for putting this together. Jonathan, Vanessa, Cole, Shane, and the rest of the crew from Franklin Road. Drop me a line at paul at truthandsoul.co.nz if you have helpful comments, unbounded praise, or fishing tips. So please find yourself encouraged. Also, a five-star review on iTunes helps, I believe. I know this may be perjury, but it's for a good cause-ish. Thank you for listening. Here's Matt Stalker to play out for you. Check out Matt Stalker and Fables on Spotify. They're great. Stay safe. Thank you. On the 
found a hundred ways that our hands fit together. Centrifugal force pulls us apart as we spin. Please forgive my trembling hands, crudely silhouetted by the flickering spires of candlelight. While the wicked sleep sound, the anxious toss and turn, thoughts come not as single spies, but in battalions. While the wicked sleep sound, the anxious toss and Forgive my trembling hands, crudely silhouetted by the flickering spires of candlelight. While the wicked sleep sound, the anxious toss and turn. Thoughts come not as single spies, but in battalions. While the wicked sleep sound, the anxious toss and turn. 